Once upon a time, it was back in the days when judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilian. All Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, they all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left alone with her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next ten years. But then the two brothers, Malone and Kilian, died. Now Naomi was left with neither her sons nor her husband. One day, she got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that Yahweh, God, had come to the aid of his people and provided them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, Go back, go home, and live with your mothers. And may Yahweh God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May Yahweh God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, No, we're going on with you to your people. But Naomi was firm, Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you think I have any more sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said there's still hope, and this very night got another husband and had more sons, would you really sit around and wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter for me than for you. Yahweh God has dealt me a hard blow. He has turned his hand against me. Again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and her gods go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. And where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried. You have my word. May Yahweh God hold it against me and only me if anything, even death, comes between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really Naomi? It doesn't even look like her anymore. But she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. God, the all-powerful one, has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life, but Yahweh God has brought me back empty. I have nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? Yahweh, God certainly doesn't. The all-powerful one has ruined me. And so Naomi returned from the country of Moab, along with Ruth, the Moabite immigrant. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning 
of the barley harvest. for reading that, Kelsey. Um, For the next few weeks, we're going to enter into this story of Ruth. And I say enter into the story because it's a moving story. Um, It's a tragic story. Um, At times, hopefully you'll see it's a hopeful story. Um, And even though it's about these peasant Israelite women that lived 3,000 years ago in a culture that was totally different than ours, I actually think it's a lot like our stories. I think we can begin to see our stories in Ruth and Naomi's story. Because if you're here today and uh, you feel tired or you feel worn down, this is your story. If, If you're here today and you're not sure what God is up to in your life and you're wondering, what is he doing? This is, this is your story. If you're here today and you feel like an outsider at times, maybe you feel like an outsider uh, at church or you feel like an outsider at school or you feel like an outsider at work or maybe in Denver, right? You just don't fit in. This is your story because this is the story of of outsiders. If you're here today and you don't even really want to be here today, right? You you didn't even want to sing the songs we were singing earlier and, and, and you don't love to hear all the things that people say about God in church because the God that you believe in right now, you just got all sorts of questions and doubts about, then this, this is your story. So I want to invite you to do something different for the next few weeks. I want to invite you to enter into this story with me. And, and stories in the Bible are different than other parts of the Bible. You read other parts of the Bible and there might be rules or commandments or wisdom or instruction or teaching. Um, in fact, we just finished reading through this letter that Paul wrote. Paul was a, a leader in the early church and he wrote it to a group of other Christians and he gave all this pra- he gave all this theological sort of instruction and then all this practical advice. And a lot of times you can walk away from, from parts of the Bible like that with you know, some easy principles to apply in your life, but stories don't work that way right? I mean, what sort of principle would you apply in your life? I mean, what would the sermon be today? Like five ways to avoid famine and death in your life, right? I mean, that just doesn't work. That would be crazy. That's not how you engage stories. And so I want to ask you to do something different. I want you to enter into this story for the next few weeks. Kelsey's going to be reading it for us, and then we'll jump back in and reread parts of it, and I'll try to point out a few things along the way, and there'll be some cultural things to try to explain and get our our heads and our minds around, And, and maybe there will be ways that God challenges you, or maybe there will be some principles or some lessons that come out of it, but mainly, I just want you to immerse yourself in the story and ask just a few bigger questions. What's God doing in this story? And how does this story speak to me? And if I can start to ask the question, what is God up to in this story? Then maybe I can ask the question, what is God up to in my own life and in my own story? 
So with that in mind, uh, I want to look at chapter one again uh, today, and I'm going to read, I'm not all of it over again, we're going to read a few parts of it again, and I'll read from the NIV translation, which um, we're just reading translations, it was originally written in Hebrew, uh, what Kelsey read earlier is more of a paraphrase, so I'll read from the NIV, and that's what, um, this is how it starts, this is what it says, starting in chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So we're told right off the bat, this is in the time period of the judges in Israel. Uh, And that's an era um, where there's actually a whole book in the Bible dedicated to describing this uh, time period. It's very creatively named Judges. Um, and uh, if you know anything about this period, this takes place right after uh, Israel comes out of Egypt. So remember, there's a story of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt. They settle in the promised land. And then there's this period of judges. It's about 1200 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. And it's a period and a time of chaos. Because there's, just, there's violence in the land, there's war in the land, there's no central government. The 12 tribes settle in 12 different areas, and they often start fighting against one another. And then enemies come in, and they have to fight against them. And, and there's no central law, and people are just doing whatever they think is right. And, and it's just, it's a really difficult and bad time. Think modern-day Syria. That's what life would have been like during this time. And right off the bat... There's some irony in this story. Uh, The narrator, we don't know who wrote this all down, but the narrator tells us that there's this family and they live in this little village named Bethlehem. Now, now Bethlehem doesn't have any historical significance at this point. We're going to hear a lot about Bethlehem in the next few weeks, but it had no significance at that time. It was just this little tiny village in Israel. And interestingly, Bethlehem in Hebrew is Beit Lechem, which means house of bread, House of bread. And they actually live in this area called Ephrath. And the word Ephrath in Hebrew means fruitful or abundant. And names and Hebrew words often have symbolic meanings in stories like this. They give us a cue as to what this story is going to be about. And then we're even told there's this, there's this couple that lives in this little town in this area. And their names are Elimelech, which means my God is king in Hebrew. And Naomi, which means lovely. Or pleasant. But we quickly find out that this really nice sounding couple who live in this nice sounding village in this nice sounding area are actually suffering the consequences of a terrible famine. And so we might think that this story is going to be about food or abundance or fruitfulness or blessing, but it's not. It's going to be about tragedy and heartache. And when we hear about famine, uh, we probably think about natural causes, right? Why does a famine happen? Well, it's because there wasn't rain that year, the ground was too dry, or the crops didn't grow, or or maybe a plague of locusts wiped in and, and killed everything. And that sometimes happened. But the people back then would have known there were also human causes to famine. 
Many times violence or war would break out and that would cause famine because it would devastate the land. And even more than natural causes or human causes, Israelites back then would have believed there were supernatural reasons for famine. Because God had said, when they came out of, uh, and they came out of Egypt and came into Israel, he had said in his law, if you continue to follow me and if you obey all my laws and you don't stray away from me, then I will always bless you and I'll make your crops grow and I'll make everything fruitful and abundant. But if you turn away from me, if you disobey me, if you don't do what I ask you to do, well, then I'll bring famine and death into your land as a way to get your attention and try to turn you back to me. So any good Israelite, probably all the villagers of Bethlehem, maybe a hundred or a couple hundred people at that time, people like Naomi and Elimelech would have believed, ultimately, this is God's hand. God is behind this famine and this devastation and all that we are experiencing right now. And so this is not going to be a story about abundance or blessing or fruitfulness. It's going to be a story about emptiness, about barren fields and empty barns and all the questions that raises about who God is and why he's doing this. Now, I wonder if some of us have experienced that story in our lives. I wonder if some of us are even experiencing it right now, right? Maybe, maybe your life feels empty. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you haven't found another job. Maybe your days feel empty of meaningful work. Maybe your banking account is often empty and that's causing some problems and you never can seem to get back into the positive. Maybe your apartment or your house is empty. Seems like everyone around you is getting married. Every summer you're going to wedding after wedding, but it's not happening for you. Or maybe you're not having kids and it seems like everyone around you is having kids, right? And you're just going to baby shower to baby shower and there's all kinds of celebration, but it's not happening for you. The house is empty. That's raising all kinds of questions about why God would be doing this. So this is gonna be a story about emptiness. It's also gonna be a story about women, Right? right off the bat, we think it's probably going to be about men, because most Old Testament stories are about men, because it's a patriarchal culture, right? We hear about this man and his two sons, but within a few verses, he dies, and both of the sons die, and the rest of the story is primarily about women. It's also a story about immigrants, and we often miss that. We don't even think of it in those terms, but Naomi and her husband are immigrants in Moab. They're not from Moab. They leave the terrible conditions in Israel to find a better life in Moab. They think that we can find a better life there. And we don't know how they left. We don't know if they joined a bunch of other refugees in a caravan that made their way to Moab. Or maybe they were just by themselves, as the story seems to indicate. But somehow they become immigrants in the land of Moab. And the plight of an immigrant or a refugee in those days would have been very very difficult, just like it still is today. Naomi would have been seen as a foreigner in Moab. She would have had to try to assimilate into a culture that did not speak her language and expected her to speak 
their language. She would have tried to assimilate into a culture that didn't share her cultural values. It was very different with people who looked down on her, people who probably judged her, people who put her in a category, people who didn't want to take care of her when things were difficult, people who probably wish she had never come in the first place. And how can we keep people like that out of Moab from now on? That's how people would have perceived Naomi at that time. And Ruth... Ruth is gonna be an immigrant as well. When she goes, she's from Moab. When she goes to Israel, she's gonna be the outsider. She's gonna be the one who doesn't speak the language. She's gonna be the one who doesn't fit in, who's judged. You see, these people are like the undocumented day laborers in our culture. They're like the people who we often see and think, why are they here and why do we have to take care of them? And why are they going to drain the resources that everyone else should be benefiting from? How can we keep them out? And, and if that sort of stirs up some emotions, that's good. That's how Moabites would have viewed someone like Naomi at that time. And so before we move on, I just want to pause here for a second and say, Let's not forget throughout this entire story, these are immigrants. In fact, Ruth won't even be called by her name through the rest of the story. She'll just be referred to as that foreigner, that immigrant. And I don't know that this story gives us any answers to the issues, the political or legislative issues that we have on the news all the time. I do think this story should make us as followers of Jesus stop and pause. And whenever we see immigrants or refugees, or people from a different culture in our culture, maybe they're just like Naomi and Ruth. Maybe they're facing the same hardship and the same prejudice and the same racism that they would have faced. Maybe they're just trying to find a better life. Maybe their lives have been empty and difficult, and they're just trying to find something better. Maybe they're not a category or a problem or an issue. Maybe they're just people with stories just like Naomi and Ruth. This is going to be a story of women. It's going to be a story of immigrants. It's going to be a story also about deep suffering and tragedy. Think about Naomi's life. She gets to Moab to flee this famine. She's a immigrant there and then so she's a woman for starters and then her husband dies so she becomes a widow and then she's an immigrant so she's basically in the lowest class of society at that time and then her two israelite sons marry local moabite women now when you got married in that day you pretty quickly had children because in their culture children were a sign of significance Right? Children were a sign of God's blessing and God's fruitfulness in someone's life. Children would be the one who would carry on the family name. Children would carry on the family inheritance. They would work the family land. And then very practically, children are the ones who would grow up and they would make a living and they would take care of their parents and their grandparents when they got old. And yet, we're told for 10 years, Ruth is married to her husband and they don't have any kids. And for 10 years, Orpah is married to her husband and they don't have any kids. And so let's just stop and think about that for a second. For Naomi, the one thing that can bring her hope, 
The one thing that can make her feel not so empty. The one thing that might be God's way of saying there is life amidst all the death. There is life amidst all the suffering and all the famine and all the hardship and all the difficulty. The one thing that might be able to give her new life. And for 10 years, it doesn't happen. 10 years, 120 months. Two daughters-in-law, 240 different cycles. 240 different times that God could have injected hope, that God could have changed the game, that God, 240 different opportunities that God could have done something to deal with all of her emptiness and brokenness. And he never does. And then, as if to reinforce this idea that God is cruel, the only thing she has left are two sons, they both die. So, so sometimes we read the story of Job in the Bible and we think of how tragic it was. Remember the story, Job loses all of his wealth and all of his children in one day in this terrible tragedy. But Job never lost his wife and Job didn't lose his land and he didn't lose his home and Job could go out and make more money and Job could go out and have more children. But you read Naomi's story, she loses everything. Her husband, her sons, her home. She's in a culture where people probably look down upon her. She has nothing left. Her her two daughters-in-law can't have any children or don't have any children. We're not told why, but they're barren as well. She has nothing left. And so finally, she decides to go back to Judah She gets word that that things have changed there, that the conditions have gotten better and there's actually food. And so she begins to head back to Judah because there's nothing for her in Moab. There's nothing left in this foreign country for her. And there's this discussion with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah on the road. And look at what Naomi says to them. This is in verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, you can see how important a husband and sons were in that culture, and they've all been taken away from her. Would you still wait until I grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you, because Yahweh's hand has turned against me. And then she returns to Bethlehem. And, and the women and the friends, remember this part that, that she left 10 years ago when she shows up in Bethlehem, they don't even recognize her. She physically looks different. She is a physically broken woman. And they basically say, is that you? I mean, is that really you? And look at what she says in response. This is in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me lovely or pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, which means bitter or harsh, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Or it could be translated, the Almighty has been very harsh to me. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought 
misfortune upon me. Or literally, the Almighty has done evil to me. So, Naomi's hit rock bottom, right? I mean, couldn't get any worse. She's broken. She's suffering. She's bitter and she's empty. And the only thing that she can conclude, rightly so, is that God must be against her. God must be doing all of these horrible things to her. And I imagine some of us have felt that way in life before. I mean, I imagine some of us have been in those circumstances where things have just gotten too bad or so bad that that's the only conclusion we can come to. God does not love me. He does not care. And he must be behind all of us. And he wants me to have a miserable life, right? And I imagine there's maybe a few people here today that are feeling that right now. And if that's you, let me just, let me just say a couple things to you. Number one, You have every right in the world to cry out to God in your bitterness and in your pain and in your hurt and in your resentment and just to let him have it with all of your anger. You can do that. You can tell him how you really feel. That's what Job does. That seems to be what Naomi does. That's what the people who wrote many of the Psalms do. I mean, we read those verses before, but I just want to read the first two again. This is Psalm 13. It says this, how long, Lord, How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? See, you can make that your prayer. That's what Job does. That's what Naomi does. That's what the Psalms do. You know, even Jesus does this. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's, he's receiving so much violence and harm and injustice and unfairness and he's bearing the emptiness and the burden of the entire world. And do you remember what he cries out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. Why are you doing this? Why have you turned your face away from me and turned your hand against me? That's Jesus' prayer. And we can follow in his footsteps and pray those same things. But here's the second thing. We can be honest with God in that way. But secondly, you need to invite others to pray that prayer with you. Don't go through it alone. Don't bear that burden alone. If you're feeling empty right now, invite other people to be empty with you. If you're broken right now, we can be broken with you. We don't have all the answers. We'll sometimes tell you we have the answers. We're wrong. We just need to keep our mouths quiet and just sit with you. That's what Job's friends did when they first came and hung out with him. They just sat with him and nobody talked. They just sat in the emptiness together. And if you don't have any faith right now, maybe we can have faith for you. If you don't have any hope right now, maybe we can have hope for you. Because this isn't just Naomi's story. It's ultimately Ruth's story. Her sister Orpah says, you're right, Naomi. I should just stay here. I shouldn't go with you. I have nothing in Israel. I have no family there. I have no future there. There's nothing for me. If I go to Israel with you, then I'll become the immigrant. I'll be the widow. I'll be the one who has zero future. That doesn't make any sense. 
You're right, Naomi. I should just stay here with my family where I at least have some sort of future. And that's what Orpah does. And it's the smart thing to do. It makes sense. But Ruth does something that doesn't make a lot of sense. She says this in those famous words, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. In other words, she's basically saying to Naomi, I'm committed to you. I'll walk with you through this. I'll carry your brokenness with you. I'll carry your emptiness with you. Your story will become my story. Your people will become my people and even your God will become my God. And together, we'll figure out a way to move forward. And it's this, it's this unbelievable pledge, right? I mean, it's this unbelievable commitment of, of unconditional love. Ruth is now gonna become an immigrant among people who probably don't like her, among people who don't know her, where she has no family ties. And she's now gonna worship the God whom she maybe believes, like Naomi, is doing all these horrible things in their life. And yet, Ruth embraces that. And she pledges her life and her commitment to Naomi and to her God. And if this were a movie, um, Naomi would burst into tears right now and she would embrace her daughter-in-law and they would say, we're gonna make it through this together, right? Not so much. That's not what happens. Naomi doesn't even seem to care. Ruth makes this unbelievable pledge and Naomi just looks at her and in Hebrew, basically paraphrasing, says the equivalent of whatever. And then she turns and starts walking and they don't speak anymore. And Ruth starts walking with her. And then they get back to Bethlehem. And do you remember this? We've read it before. With Ruth standing right next to Naomi, her friends say, is that you, Naomi? And Naomi says, yeah, it's me, but I'm not Naomi anymore. I'm bitter and I've come back empty. With Ruth standing right next, what am I, chopped liver, right? <laughs> but Ruth doesn't seem to be offended at this. Because she's not committed to Naomi based on Naomi's gratitude or Naomi's feelings. Ruth just seems to love Naomi and want to commit to her. And we don't know why, but maybe, just maybe, it's a picture of the way God loves Naomi. Maybe, just maybe, God's hand hasn't been against Naomi, but God has been with Naomi in all of her hardship and in all of her suffering. And even though he seems silent and even though he seems absent and even though she doesn't see it, maybe, just maybe, this is God's way of tangibly saying, I'll be with you and it will be embodied in this daughter-in-law, this Moabite who says she'll go back with you 
and walk with you through this, even when you're not grateful and even while you're still bitter about all of it. Which forces us, I think, to ask a question today. Um, If you're not someone who's like Naomi right now, if you're not experiencing that level of hardship or suffering or emptiness, is there someone in your life who is? Is there a Naomi in your life? Is there a Naomi in your small group? Is there a Naomi in this community? Is there a Naomi in your neighborhood? Is there a Naomi in your group of friends? And very few of us can make the kind of pledge that Ruth made, right? But maybe, maybe you could go to that person and say, I'll be there for you. I'll walk with you through this. When you need to vent, you come vent to me. When you need a shoulder to cry on, you come cry with me. When you just need somebody to sit with you in this and not try to give you any answers, I'll be that person. When you don't have faith, I'll be there with you to have faith and hope for you. Is there anyone in your life that God has maybe put you in their life to be that person right now? So this is the beginning of Ruth and Naomi's story in the Old Testament. It's a story of women. It's a story of immigrants. Let's not forget that. It's a story of emptiness and suffering. But it's also, hopefully, you'll see a story of hope. Because the first chapter of Ruth begins with a famine. And the crops have died, the ground is fallow, and the fields are barren. And Naomi's life has pretty much followed the same course. Her husband and her sons have died. Her two daughters-in-law are barren. She has no sons or grandsons to put her hope in. And now she's returning to Judah empty. But this famine and this loss and this emptiness won't have a final word. Because here's how the chapter ends. So, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let me pray. God, we just pause for a moment. And uh, we ask us to help you see how you're working in our lives. And for those of us who are here today who feel enormously blessed right now and thankful and um, God, help us to see ways that we can be with others in their pain and in their hurt. Help us to see ways that we can be your presence in this world. We can show love to people who are outsiders, who are immigrants, who are, who are experienced deep loss and emptiness. Give us the courage to do that. And for those of us who are experiencing a bit of that ourselves right now, God, it's hard to have faith during those times. And so all we can do is ask you to give us faith and give us hope, give us resilience, 
Help us to figure out how we can just keep hanging on to you and trust that somehow you're hanging on to all of us. Pray this in your name. Amen.